Welcome to the Vanguard Church Podcast. You're about to hear a sermon from Vanguard Church Central in the heart of Colorado Springs. With every message, it's our prayer that you hear and learn how to live out your faith in real relationship with Jesus and with others. May your faith be strengthened, your hope increased, and your heart inspired to live for Jesus no matter the cost. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Well, Vanguard, it's great to be with you this morning. I was very excited when Pastor Kelly reached out to me and asked uh, if I would be a part of worship on this day that kicks off the Glocal uh, Ministries. And so what I want you to do at the beginning here this morning is I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 37. 25 through 37. And this will be a familiar passage to some of you, although some of you may not be familiar with it at all. And that's okay because we're going to experience this together. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and when he set him in his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we thank you for the worship time that we've gotten to experience, the the heart of worship, Father, coming back to what's important, to, to focusing on what truly matters. And Lord, this morning I pray as we spend time looking at the text and as we spend time discussing together the way that we can reach out and connect to lostness in our area, I pray, Father, that you will help us to walk away with a different perspective, a new awareness, not only of the the great, vast lostness in our area, but how we as individuals might be a part of intersecting that for eternity. Lord, we love you and we praise you, and we ask for your blessing on our time together, for we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, it is a, a blessing to be here with you this morning. Um, as was said, I'm the executive director for the Colorado Baptist General Convention, and I've done that for two years now. And so anytime I get a chance to be before one of our 370 churches. So you have 369 sister congregations within the state of Colorado. I always want to say thank you. Thank you for partnership. One of the things I loved about our time uh, together, Tasha, speaking this morning was she said that you talk a lot about we're better together. Isn't that great? Amen. That's true. We are absolutely better together. And I think one of the things that's been a strength for Southern Baptists, and let me say this, We've, we've had our problems, right? There, there's some things that we just shouldn't ignore. We've had our problems. But one of the great strengths of being Southern Baptist is this understanding of our cooperative spirit together. Because we cooperate, there's so many more things that we're able to accomplish in the kingdom than we could ever by ourselves. And let me give you some of those examples. Because you partner together through the cooperative program as Southern Baptists, 3,600 missionary units are launched across the world. That means it doesn't matter what size church you are, what level you contribute, where you're located, what your culture is, it makes no difference. Any church that gives anything to the cooperative program has claimed that they have an equal part in supporting 3,600 missionary units who are reaching people that we can't reach. They're living in areas we don't live. They speak languages that we don't speak. And so we have the opportunity to see lostness impacted in that way. Because you give to the cooperative program, student or, or those that go to seminary out of cooperating churches get to go to SBC schools for 50% tuition. Now, now that should be an amen. Listen, I'm a beneficiary of that. I am grateful for your giving and for your partnership with that. Because you give to the cooperative program in Colorado, the Colorado Baptist General Convention over the last two years has been able to create partnerships with the 11 local associations that we have in the state. And a local association is just simply a geographical gathering of Southern Baptist churches where someone is now on the field able to support and respond to needs that pastors have, and to, to needs or resources that churches have. And so we've been able to do that. And let me just, a little side note here, I don't want to take too much time, but in those 11 associations that voted to partner with the Colorado Baptist General Convention, there have been, all of those votes have been unanimous votes. I want you to stop and, and let that sink in just for a moment. Where there are two Baptists, there are usually three opinions. And the fact that we've had unanimous votes, not one descending vote in all 11 of those associations, I think is evidence of the movement of the Lord. And then because you partner with the Colorado Baptist General Convention or be with the cooperative program, you have an equal part in starting 800 churches, new churches, where there was a... Uh, there, there was limited gospel witness in a particular area or no gospel witness, you were a part of 800 new churches that planted last year. And so it really is true that we're better together. It really is true that these are things we cannot accomplish by ourselves. And so um, 
And so it, it's exciting. I like to say, again, thank you to all of our churches that I get a, an opportunity to speak to. So Pastor Kelly reached out to me and asked if I would share about church planting as this kickoff to your global uh, mission emphasis. And so in, in the ways that we just talked about partnering together, that's needed. But at the same time, what's needed is raising up church planters out of our churches that can go out. You know, North American Mission Board often says, we churches plant churches. And that's true because churches raise up church planters. Church planters don't grow on trees. And so they are developed through the local ministries of a church until they sense the call of the Lord to go out and to launch out and to start those churches. Well, what I want to share with you this morning are three different aspects of this church planting goal. I want to, I want to talk about the need. I want to talk about um, the way we go about meeting the need. And then I want to talk about what we can all do together. All right? And so I want to, I want to walk through this at first. Let's, let's talk about the need. And I don't want your eyes to roll in the back of your head. You've got an outline that'll be up here on the, uh, on the screen for you so you, know, you don't get overwhelmed with numbers. But sometimes numbers are the best way to communicate a need. And so I'd like to talk with you about the need and, and in the state of Colorado, but specifically I'd like to talk about the front range because that's 80% of the population of Colorado. It's from Long's Peak down here to Pike's Peak. There is 80% of our population uh, exists. And so let's talk about this. The population of Colorado is 5.812 million people. The population, or 80% of that number, of the front range is 4.654 million, uh, million people. Demographics tell us that within that region, along the I-25 corridor, that there are 160 unique people groups. 160. So the nations have come to us. In those, out of those 160 people groups, 109 different languages are spoken. The number of evangelical churches in the front range is estimated at 1,079. And in fact, the person who gave me that statistic is one of our North American missionaries um, who said, I think that number is high, but we're going to go with 1,079. And then the percentage of lostness in the front range specifically is 90 to 95%. Did you realize that Colorado, especially in the front range, has the highest percentage per capita of lost or unchurched people across uh, than anywhere else in the whole nation. 90 to 95% lost or unchurched. So let me see if I can, I can give you a perspective on this. If we just take that 90% figure, the lowest, most conservative figure, of that 4.654 million people live in the front range, it means 4.188 million people don't know Jesus or are not connected in a church. 4.188 million people. If we were to take that number and were to divide it by the number of evangelical churches that exist in that area, it means that each existing congregation to reach the front range for Christ would need to reach 
3,881 more people per church. That's a pretty overwhelming number. Now let me add into that, that most churches in that front range are 100 or less. And they need to reach almost 4,000 more people for us to see the, the front range evangelized. Now, that communicates an overwhelming need, doesn't it? Just all, all by itself. What I want to do is I want to add in there the phenomenon that we experienced a couple years ago called COVID-19. Because employers in the areas are more and more moving offline. Their, their employees are able to go remote. Some of you have experienced that. That what's happened is many of the leaders in churches have relocated out of the area because it's cheaper to live somewhere else and they can continue to work their same employer. And so it's created this great need. Colorado has, has a need. There's a void of leadership, and we have a need for planting new churches all over. So I, I don't think that with those numbers, I don't think anybody would argue there's a need, right? It's pretty, pretty self-evident, isn't it? Well, let's look at the second point in this, and that's the new reality. I'd like to, you know, we talk a lot about reaching the world around us, whether it be reaching Colorado Springs, reaching the Front Range, reaching Colorado, reaching the world for Christ. We talk about that, and usually the contextualization of that is our own experiences. But we live in a different world today than many of us grew up in, don't we? It really goes without saying that a younger generation that speaks the language of their peers has an easier way of communicating the gospel in meaningful ways than those that don't understand their generation. Does that make sense? It's probably safer to say that those of us that are over 50 are going, not impossible, and not that we shouldn't try, but going to have a more difficult time relating to those in their 20s that are raising up without any kind of church contextualization. And so what that tells us is that we need to see new leaders rising up because our generations keep getting younger. Well, it's this continuum, right? The, I keep having birthdays and people behind me keep getting younger, it seems like. And, that, and that's the world that we live in. To, to say that things have changed and that the world that we're in today is not the world that I grew up in is an understatement, right? We've seen shifts and changes and things like that that we never thought that we would see. And yet this is the world, this is the world that our, uh, our culture's in, the world that we're trying to reach. So rather than us saying we want to reach the world for Christ, maybe the first question that we need to ask is, what does the world look like that we're trying to reach? How does the world think and process and have, what are their values that we're trying to reach in this world? We live in an unchurched culture. 30, 40 years ago, it wasn't the same. In the 50s and 60s, it wasn't the same. At least someone somewhere along the line had a connection with church somewhere in their upbringing, right? Grandpa and grandma took them to Sunday school. Whether they liked it or not, they went, and they had an experience of what's going on inside a building that we call a church, church building. 
But here's the truth. Even on Sunday mornings when we gather together, or maybe those that are viewing online, and, and I was told there were, there were new people who had accepted Christ at a, at a women's conference that was just held, right? So they, they may not have the stories. And so these people are being integrated into the fellowship and the community of the church, and they don't have an understanding of the things we understand. But we make assumptions sometimes. We make assumptions that people know about Daniel in the lion's den. We make assumptions that people know about Noah and the ark, and yet the reality is people don't. I had an experience when I was a director of missions in Orange County, California, where I was meeting with a pastor in Huntington Beach, and he was explaining to me that he had a, a, a new couple that was coming into the church. They were in their 20s, and he set an appointment with them, and, and it wasn't long after having just initial conversations with me, realized they're not church. They have no experience with church. And so they came into his office and he began talking with them. And his plan was to do just a real high-level cursory history of Scripture and then land in the gospel. And so he started out by saying to them, now you know Adam and Eve. And the wife looked at them with all sincerity and said to him, we're new here and we haven't met them yet. This is the culture we're trying to reach. James Emery White in 2016 wrote a book called The Rise of the Nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not a bunch of women in black habits, right? The Rise of the Nuns. In that book, he talked about how in the 70s and 80s, the, the people we were seeking to reach, the lost, if you took a continuum from zero, never heard the name of Jesus, to 10, a brand new believer, he said, we were reaching sevens and eights. They had some experience, some understanding. They knew the stories. He said, today, we're reaching twos and threes, people that don't have that understanding. But, but younger, younger leaders understand that because that's their culture. That's what they grew up in. That's who they, they know. The very fact of the matter is that even though we live in a culture that's not churched and doesn't understand the value of church, we as the church have still been sent to be the redemptive arm of God in this world. Amen? We've been sent. And both of the Testaments communicate that. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 7, the Lord said, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? In the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, it says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. In both of those instructions, the communication is, Let's go. There's a need. There's an important point to go. So, so there's a need, right? We've got this large number of unchurched in our area. The reality is, the new reality is that we're trying to reach a people that we don't speak their language. In many ways, there's a real, a real comparison to international missions. International missionaries grew up in one culture. They go live in another culture. They spend three years learning the culture, learning the language, learning the customs, we need people that understand those things that are going to reach uh, our, our people. But the third thing I want to share with you this morning is a radical approach. A radical approach that starts with us demonstrating a practical and tangible aspect of Christ's love. Because there are people out in our world that we're seeking to reach that we need to reach that don't look like us, that don't think like us, whose values are not like us, who don't vote like us, but who Jesus Christ desperately loves. 
and we need to be a part of that. And so I want to share with you some of the things from this text that we read earlier that communicate not just how we do this collectively, but a component of how do we do this as individuals. We need to support church planting. We need to see church planters raised up. We need new churches. But we need to be a part of that as well. We don't just sit on the sidelines and think that's somebody else's role. We've got a job to do as well. So I want us to look at this text. And, and if you're familiar with this text, do me a favor. Don't run to the end, okay? Don't, don't jump to the conclusion. We have a tendency to do that with stories we're familiar with. Oh, it works out in the end, and so we jump there. Don't do that. Let's walk verse by verse and experience this together. So I want you to look with me again at verse 25. The text to the, to the, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the context starts in verse 25. And it tells us that a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. Okay, he stood up to put Jesus to the test. And here's his question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And here's what I want to remind you about that, about this, this context and everything that flows from this point. The lawyer is not interested in the answer. The lawyer is interested in trapping Jesus. And so, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life is his question. Verse 26, Jesus gives his response. He asks two questions. Anybody here in education? In educa okay. So in education, you understand that the best way to teach a student is not to give them the answer, but to, to help them process through that and, and draw the answers themselves, right? So Jesus, as the master teacher, asks two questions. Here it is. What is written in the law? And how does it read to you? How do you read it? I, I want to unpack that just a, just a little bit. What Jesus is really asking is two things. He's asking him, one, do you properly interpret the law? In other words, are you thinking correctly about the law? And so that's his question in what's written in the law. He wants to understand the lawyer's interpretation. The second piece here, how does it read to you, is really a, a question about application. Are you thinking correctly about this? And the application piece is, are you living correctly based on what you think? Now, here's the truth. If you think correctly about a subject, it does not automatically mean you're going to do the right thing because that takes surrender and discipline and, and action. If you think incorrectly about a subject, the guarantee is your outcomes will be wrong. It'll be off. If any of you are mathematicians, you understand. If it's not plumb, if it's not square, right, it's going to be off from that point forward. So Jesus asks us two questions. In verse 27, the lawyer responds to him. And here's what he says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And he mixes in Leviticus uh, chapter 19, and he says, and your neighbor as yourself. So he takes and gives what is the statement of faith for Judaism of Jesus' day. It is the Shema, right? You should love the Lord your God with all that you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, here's what Jesus responds. You have answered correctly. In other words, your thinking on this is right. You've answered correctly. But look at his statement at the end. Do this, <clears throat> excuse me, do this and you will live. That's the right action. That's the right living. Well, now the lawyer's trapped. He's given the right answer, but obviously his living doesn't match what he knows to be right. 
And so verse 29 becomes this pivotal movement between the background of the parable into the parable proper. And here's what he says. He just simply says, well, who's my neighbor? Right? That, that's, I should have asked, are there any lawyers in the house? And that's the lawyerly question. We're going to parse the words. It, who is my neighbor? Right? Let, let me see if I can put it in the context of what we talked about of this world that we live in. It's like, who is the person that's different than me? Who is the person that thinks differently, that looks differently, that, that values are different than mine, or votes differently than I do? Who is that person that I am to care about, that I'm to, to, to reach? And so Jesus responds to him with the parable, starting in verse 30. The parable, 30 through 37, is Jesus' answer to this question. All right, so let's look at what he says. He says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and he stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, the, the road between Jerusalem and Jericho was, was a dangerous road, and most people that traveled that understood that. The very fact that someone fell into the robber's hands and was beaten like this was not an unusual happening. But here's what I want you to, to, to note. It is the description and, and the, the clarity in which Jesus describes the event. In many other places in the scriptures, he just says, well, a farmer went out into a field, or a man came across a pearl of great price. It's not a lot of detail. There's a lot of detail here. Look at the detail again. The robbers stripped him. That means he was naked. They beat him, which means he was probably bleeding. And they went away, leaving him half dead, meaning that he was probably unconscious. If you came across a man in your driveway that was naked and bleeding and not moving, would your conclusion be, well, I think he'll be okay? No, the purpose of Jesus' detail here is so that no one could miss the need that this man had. It was so obvious, no one could walk by and say he doesn't have a need. So now we have three people, right? You've heard multiple jokes. One guy, two guys. So here's the first guy. Verse 31, and by chance, a priest was going down on that road. I want you to highlight or remember the word down. I think it's important here. So the distinctive or the distance between Jerusalem and Jericho on this road was 15 miles, and there was an elevation change of 3,300 feet. So when you went from Jerusalem and went to Jericho, you were going literally down now, we use, tend to use the word more liberally, right? I'm going down to the office. I'm going down to the store. I'm going here. Here, I think it means literally he was heading away from Jerusalem and going to Jericho, which means that he had served at the temple or had service at the temple and now was, was leaving and had more likely headed home, all right? Verse 32 is the second man in the story. This guy's a Levite. Now, he has... He's from the priestly tribe, and he has responsibilities at the temple, but they're secondary responsibilities, but still, he's serving at the temple. And it says that likewise, it doesn't indicate he was going down, but likewise is an indicator for us that he was headed in the same direction as the previous man. So he was probably leaving Jerusalem, and he was headed to Jericho on his way home. 
And he came to the place and saw him. I want you to notice that in both of these accounts, they saw him and passed by on the other side. He came to the place and saw him and passed by on the other side. The text tells us he didn't happen to walk by and miss it. And the other is that there was an obvious need that couldn't have been mistaken. And both of them walked by. I only mentioned the direction of travel for consideration. Consider this, that in that time, everything happened at the temple. Worship, business, everything was taking place at the temple. But if these men, who were the religious leaders of the day, were at the temple, most likely they were involved in some aspect of worship at the temple, and now we're headed home. What I think that's important is they would have understood that their time at the temple would have been coming into the very presence of God. If we come into the very presence of God, something about us should be different, right? There should be a change, a marked change in the life of those who come into the very presence of God. If we go back and look at how they, the description Jesus gave, so it's not, not mistaking, you can't mistake the need this man has, and the fact that they've just spent time with God, they should have, something should have changed, right? They had the right answers, but somehow they missed it after they left church. You get that? Imagine that Pastor Kelly is here and he's preaching an inspirational message, which I'm sure every message that he preaches is inspirational, and you're amening and you're praising the Lord, and he's telling you the importance of us meeting the needs of people who are around us so that it's, we can use that as a platform to reach people for Christ. And you're saying, amen, praise the Lord. That's what we need to do. And then you walk out of here and you go to your car and by the driver's side door, there is a naked man who is bleeding and not moving. And you open the door and you step over the body and you get in the car because we have to beat the Methodist to lunch. We're saying, no one would ever do that. But this is the very example of those in Jesus' story who understood the right thing to do, but did not do it. But there comes along a third man. And this third man comes along, and he's hated by the audience that are listening to this story. In fact, the the rabbis would say that one who eats the breads of Samaritans is like one who eats the flesh of swine. You know, Orthodox Jewish boys were not able to eat pulled pork, right? It was taboo and off the menu. And he's saying that there's hatred here. And, and I want you to understand that the animosity that goes between the Samaritan and the Jews goes from the Jews to the Samaritans. It's equal, and, it, and it's shared by both. But most likely, this man who is a Samaritan is not a Jew who's traveling in a highly uh, Jewish uh, communi- uh, you know, pathway that they're going, Jerusalem and Jericho, both highly uh, populated by Jews. So this man who is outside of the context of the Jews stops to help a man who's most likely Jewish, who doesn't think like him, who doesn't look like him, whose values are not like him, who probably doesn't vote like him, and he reaches out and helps him. And this is the person that Jesus elevates as the example of what we're supposed to do. In fact, I want you to notice it says he had compassion on this man 
And the Hebrew or the Greek word is a complex word that simply means to identify with a person's situation to such a degree that you cannot look away. That's He was compelled to help him. There are certain things you can't unsee. And it wasn't just like he said, hey, I hope you're warm and well-fed. He took and put him on his own beast. He bandaged up his wounds the best he could, took him to an inn, took out two denarii, which is two days' wages for a laborer, paid for him, and then said, when I come back, if he's, if he's accumulated any more cost, I'll cover that as well. So Jesus then turns back to the lawyer in verse 36, and he says, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And what is he supposed to say? The lawyer's trapped. Verse 37, he says, the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus concludes just with his statement in verse 28 where he said, do this and you will live. He reiterates that application component. He says to him, go and do the same. The story of the Good Samaritan is a story for us. It's a story for the need of church planters. It's a story for a way that we reach out into community different than maybe we did before. There was a time when there were certain things that we did that, that made sense, but, but now those things don't make sense anymore. And I'm not talking about compromising the gospel. Our principles are sound. A gospel is sound and it doesn't move. But the way we apply it has to continually move because the world around us is moving and changing. And there is a need for new church plants, but there is a need for us to understand a world that today is very skeptical of the church and is looking for, do they really mean what they say? Are they really true to their word? Do they really care about me as a person? Or they just want a few more people in their, in their membership? I think the world today, more than ever, needs to see the church or from the church the activities that we see described here, that we are people who are willing to step out, that are willing to go, to leave our, our buildings and go to do life with them because we love them, because Jesus loved them, and be sincere in that. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you now thanking you that your word teaches us that you loved all sorts of people. Father, there are people in this room from varying backgrounds, and you loved all of us. There are people in this room who, who were involved in various things before coming to Christ, and Lord, yet you loved us. There are people out in the world who, who act like they're lost, and we're surprised that lost people act like lost people. And Father, you love them. I pray, Lord, that you will teach us how to be your hands and arms and feet in this world, to be about praying for, seeing church planters raised up, seeing new churches put together, continuing to partner with those church plants that are in areas that we don't live in, but, Father, as well, that we take an active role and responsibility in being your hands and your feet in this world, reaching and touching people, showing them we don't shirk back from them, but that we step into them and we love them because you love them. May we be that kind of Christian. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Vanguard Central Podcast. 
we encourage you to go out and live your faith in real relationship with Jesus and with others. God bless you, friend. See you next time.